Welcome to Grow Edible, the audio companion to the Northwest Edible Life blog. Homesteading, greener living, DIY, and always trying to live life on garden time. I'm your host, Erica. Thanks for joining me today. Hey guys, thanks for joining me. Grow Edible, episode five. Today I'm going to be talking to Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, which is one of my absolute favorite permaculture books for brand new beginning permaculturalists. Michael's got such an interesting story. He's a permaculture teacher, but before he'd even heard the word permaculture, he was down in Latin America living with a group of Mayan Indians, and he was able to observe firsthand this traditional indigenous way of growing and managing food forests to make sure that there was a sustainable source of food diversity for the community. And so he's got this very unique perspective and it's not dogmatic and it's not all or nothing. And he's really able to translate some of these observations in a way that that makes these ideas very accessible for people who have small spaces, who might be in HOA type communities. And he's got just a really great way of combining the function of permaculture design with an aesthetic that is going to be very accessible and very very inoffensive to your average suburban community. So I'm very excited to talk to Michael today. We're going to be talking a little bit about how to make a food forest a reality in your backyard, even if you don't have a lot of space to work with. So with that, Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Erica. I'm really pleased to be a part of uh, this new podcast series you have, uh, Northwest Edibles. It's, it's such an awesome resource to add a podcast. is uh, just a real cherry. Oh, well, thanks so much. I have this really great opportunity to talk to experts like you, um, but what I have found is that it's it's hard to take what is essentially a conversation and transfer it into a, a written blog post without losing a lot of the real character of it. So I'm excited about this, too, and I'm so glad you could be part of it. Great. Well, I'll try to add some character here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, tell us about, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, People probably who read my blog know how much I love your book, but what's your background and how did you come to permaculture? I'm originally from Appalachia here in the mid-Atlantic coast, Um, but at the age of 20, I um, took myself down to Latin America and spent pretty much the better part of the last two decades uh, living in Latin America, rural Latin America. And during that time, I had a really unique opportunity and experience uh, to live with some of the last of the uh, Lacandon Mayans, a uh, group of Mayans that are living in the stretch of Lacandon jungle between southern Mexico and Guatemala. And I was in there um, trying to help design compost toilets and contain um, some of the parasitic cycles that were going on. And I got to experience uh, the dynamics of food forests uh, by living with the Mayans without really knowing it without it being explained to me, just by living in their community and watching and watching them interact with the rainforest around them and watching them harvest and hunt and pull materials for building uh, and making medicines and crafts from the landscape around them. It, at first glance, you look at it, it looks like wild jungle, but they have been managing it for centuries. 
generations, uh, and yet it was flourishing. So this was a real head-scratcher to me. I was like, wow, where I come from, the land gets used up so quickly, uh, and then it's gone. Yet here's here's a, a group of, of humans that are living on the same piece of land and making it regenerative, actually making it create a surplus, uh, and living and staying in the same spot. So that changed my 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 complete life view uh, of what's possible. And I came back to the States, uh, you know, with that understanding and fell right into a permaculture community down in North Carolina, outside of Asheville, uh, called Earth Haven. Fantastic place, tucked in the mountains there. 300 plus acres that's being designed as a uh, permaculture community. It's supposed to house uh, 130 some people. And again, without knowing what permaculture was and landing in this community all around me, you know, I was experiencing, you know, the use of, of, of natural building, of uh, sustainable forestry, you know, of creating market gardens, uh, tapping energy off of the flowing stream, microhydro. Uh, they were creating their own economics. They were um, making consensus decisions. And I was like, wow, this is just, this is kind of the, this is kind of the North American translation, um, you know, the modern translation of the indigenous knowledge I was just experiencing. So I, I've since then sort of hybridized um, the, the permaculture teachings and uh, my experiences with living with um, the Mayans and living with other rural Latin American uh, communities into design um, that's led me to uh, starting a nonprofit in Nicaragua that focuses on long-term food security uh, by planting out food forests, uh, which are basically, you know, perennial food systems. And that's been such a success that I've been freed up uh, from having to be on the ground. And I've come back to the States. I've come back to Appalachia uh, here in Maryland. And to be closer with my family and to continue fundraising uh, for the project. And while I've, uh, you know, sort of rerouted myself here, I've um, translated, again, the knowledge uh, that I've, I've got to experience and, and translated it culturally to where I am, which is suburbia. You know, we're, we're close to Washington, D.C., close to Baltimore. I mean, the East Coast everywhere is almost suburbia these days. And so I translated this knowledge in a way that uh, suburban culture is, is ready and interested for it. You know, so uh, really taking a focus on the aesthetics. You know, how do we get this functional design uh, to look good, you know, for people to sort of be excited about having it in their front yard. You know, the homeowners association going, yeah, yeah, we'd love that. Let's, let's, let's put that in all over the place. Um, and sort of, you know, simplifying it, um, so that it can be fun and people can be like, yeah, I thought it was like a fun project and, and jump in and start doing it and, and not be sort of overwhelmed by you know, all the aspects of, of, of diversity and, you know, you have to have this and that together for it to work and, you know, jump in, start doing it and, and you'll be guided, you know, the mistakes you make will show you, you know, which way to move. Um, so that's, that's kind of been my, my path in a, in a nutshell. Well, I think that your book nails that edible landscaping with a permaculture choice. It just nails the easy jump in, get your feet wet, don't overthink it. Just start with a couple of projects aspect of permaculture that I think has been sort of, um, it's been, it's been a little lacking in terms of, um, you know, the resources available for people who are interested in this. Um, 
But let's go back because I want to know how a 20-year-old kid uh, decides to go break a disease cycle in Latin America with composting toilets. What what triggered that? I think radicalism at that age. You know, I was I was just starting to read the the Beat Generation, Kerouac, and you know some of the philosophers, Kierkegaard and whatnot. And for the first time, I was realizing everything I'd been told growing up in this culture was was a bit of a farce. And uh, so my my reaction was, I got to get out of here. You know, this place is crazy. And which was which was a good thing. Uh, and it took me it took me to Latin America. And wow, did I ever experience a completely different reality. Uh, seeing how people lived in very different ways. And the nonprofit that you started in Nicaragua, what is the name of that? It's called Project Bonafide. I mean, something done in good faith. And it's been a really awesome experience. Basically, what I helped create was just uh, a space where people are able to come and learn and exchange uh, their knowledge from different parts of the world, different parts of rural Nicaragua, Central America. Um, and, and, and share that diversity, whether it's skills, whether it's, uh, you know, plant material. And, and that was 13 years ago. And it being, you know, fertile volcanic soil uh, and in the tropics, things have grown so fast. So when we arrived, when I arrived, it was plantains, sort of a monoculture of bananas and cattle. So it wasn't really being stewarded or used by the local culture. So I, I bought it off an absentee landlord and cleared all that out and just began planting a diversity of species. And we've been experimenting um, with with different species that are um, of cultural interest uh, that can, you know, be turned into something economic that also creates food security. There's a real uh, realism that has to be in there about making money. You can't just say, oh, this is going to be better for you. It's going to improve your hydraulic cycles and, you know, it's going to reduce your pesticide use. No, it has to make an economic difference quickly for them to reach for it, uh, for any of us to reach for it, to reality we're in. And, and now, 13 years later, we've got you know 43-acre um, diverse food forest that is just stacked with diversity and food uh, and genetics that people are coming from all over the Americas and the tropics to take cuttings from, to take workshops at. You know, we do permaculture design courses. Would it be fair to say that you learned a huge amount about this from the the Mayans that you were with, and then you re-inoculated almost a, sort of a cultural heritage back in another part of Latin America? Absolutely. That sounds that sounds that sounds like a good way to put it. You know, I sort of took that understanding, even even though I didn't really know the nitty gritty of it at the point at the time, um, and then I kind of hybridized it to the need of where I was in Nicaragua, um, in the sense that they had already cleared their forests. You know, they weren't already managing uh, a diversified forest system. They cleared it. Um, so it was kind of almost kind of reintroducing that, but not just reintroducing what it was, because climatic um, weather patterns have changed, especially along that Pacific side of Central America, uh, which used to, you know, have a rainy season of up to 10 months. And then it had a couple months of dry with intermittent rains in it. And that's changed pretty dramatically now with deforestation and cattle uh, to, you know, six months dry, six months wet. And now within that wet period of six months, they're getting glitches. You know, they're getting inclement weather and dry patterns that are, you know, not even, that are failing their crops. 
Um, so we we had to focus on species that are, you know, used to these kind of new climatic patterns. So we looked at places like India and Southeast Asia, where, you know, the patterns are similar to those, and bringing in, you know, some genetics like uh, jackfruit. So jackfruit has been a real winner in Nicaragua in the sense that it's a, it's a real all-star. It's a, like a multifunctional species, so it grows really quick. It creates this uh, wonderful windbreak which is a really important issue is getting any open landscape established. Uh, and it cold its leaves, even through the dry season. Uh, within three to five years, it's got this nice size of like 20 feet, and it's putting out these humongous fruits. I mean, it's the world's largest fruit. I mean, they, they, they've, been, they've been weighed up to 120 pounds. Wow. I mean, it's the size of a kid here. <laughs> and, and inside this really funky, gnarly yellow fruit is... Delicious yellow pulp, uh, sweet, a little bit of tang to it, and it is encapsulating these huge seeds that are, are are like big beans and taste like gigantic butter beans. Um, so, so it is providing you know the fruit, the nutrition there, the vitamins, and then it's creating the protein, the carbohydrate with the seed, the beans. I mean, wow! I mean, what a what an amazing uh, food producer that actually likes and thrives on the dry period. But not a native. Jackfruit isn't a native to this area. No, not at all. Not at all. But it's what is now uh, adaptive. You know, I think anything that we consider to be native at some point showed up from somewhere else um, and just really did well with the the conditions it was in. It naturalized. The climate and ecologies have always been changing on our planet and are doing now a little bit faster. Uh, because of all of our activity. So I think, you know, we're responsible for trying to keep up with that change and, and be creative with the diversity around the planet. Of course, be knowledgeable uh, about, you know, the plants that, you, that you're introducing into a new area. You don't want something to, to be noxious. You know, with a little bit of, you know, knowledge and savviness, you know, you can really make it a, something extremely positive. While we have the window, while travel is so available... Uh, and accessible to so many of us, you know, I feel it's really a responsibility that we that we share this knowledge and genetics as we move around. Take the, you know, sort of be a Johnny, Johnny Appleseed and, and say, hey, here's this great green that's growing up here, you know, in Nicaragua, this perennial green. I'm going to a farm in Costa Rica. You know, let's take it down there. Um, you know, I'm sure the nutrition is needed there as well. We have the opportunity. You know, we can be, you know, the dispersers of seeds and diversity. I love that. I think that sometimes when you talk to people who consider this, themselves very uh, ecologically minded in uh, horticulture, you can get a, a sort of a dogmatic refusal to deal with anything that's not uh, native. And I think you make such a great case that the more ethical and diversity promoting viewpoint and action can actually be to draw from whatever is appropriate to sort of increase that genetic diversity. Right. Right, exactly. And, and oftentimes what we are calling natives are, are one of the best candidates because they have proven themselves to be naturalized here. Uh, but there's many others. You know, and in my book, I, I, I mention a few of, of these wonderful fruits that are coming out of uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, some of the former Russian countries. You know, they have all these wonderful attributes to them. No, they're not native, and it's a shame when, when people sort of uh, close themselves off to, to, to the diversity of possibility. Let's talk food for us. Let's let's move north a little bit and talk about how you've applied all of this information that you've you've gleaned through all of your twenty plus years of 
permaculture experience, although it wasn't always called that, right? And no. and, uh, and and how how did you take that information and how did you turn it into something that the HOA would actually put the stamp of approval on? I brought it sort of, you know, back to square one, literally, by thinking, okay, uh, what are folks used to doing? They're used to planting a tree, uh, ideally a fruit tree in their front yard. You know, they go out in the lawn and they got good intentions. They get a peach tree or something. They put it right in the lawn and that's it. Uh, they don't really give it much of a mulch ring or anything. They just kind of leave it to fend for itself. Or they're out there constantly maintaining and feeding it. So I'm like, okay, well, let's start with that. That's where people are. And let's begin to diversify the idea. You know, how do we begin to create a small ecology around that tree uh, to serve its needs? You know, to reduce our need to input all the time and to allow it to flourish. If someone wants to start in their small space making a food forest, like what are they what are they going to need to do? What are the steps? Well, to start with, a, a food forest is not growing food in the forest. It's growing food like the forest. The food forest design is not a science. It is not even a, a developed practice, so to say. You know, there is not a lot of history here, uh, especially in the temperate region of designing food forests. So really, it's it's up to us to be creative and to observe natural you know, ecosystems, observe a natural healthy forest and look at all the things that are going on at one time. You know, you've got all these layers in a healthy forest. You know, you've got this tall overstory trees, you've got some midstory trees in there, some smaller trees, and you've got some shrubs and some herb layer. Uh, you've got some ground cover, you've got vines running through it. You've got all this diversity popping out of pretty much the same hole, so to say. And if we observe that and say, okay, wow, that's really successful, how do we imitate that on our landscape to meet our needs? You know, how do we grow our food, our medicine, you know, our fibers and fodders based on that observation? And basically, that's what creating a food forest is. Uh, so really, your your yard is going to be a perfect spot to begin an open canvas uh, to designing uh, this future uh, forest of food. And the beginnings of a food forest can be very simple, uh, it can start with just the simple idea of creating a patch, uh, a large mulched area that is going to house your main food producer, usually a, a fruit tree or fruit bush or nut tree if you have the space, and then companion planting around that tree other beneficial perennial plants that will help to feed the tree with nitrogen, with mulch, draw in beneficial insects and pollinators, and create this small ecology around your uh, fruit tree that will support it uh, while you're swinging in the hammock. Uh, you know, so first is mulch. I mean, you know, it, the mulch creates multiple benefits for a tree. It's not just, oh, it's going to hold in moisture. It does that, but the benefits of that moisture being there uh, draws up the worms. You know, it creates all the, it creates habitat basically for for all the little critters in the soil, which are going to help feed your tree and your plant. So we start with that. You know, create a patch, and I like to do this a year at least before I'm going to plant a tree, uh, ideally. So you're getting things prepared and, and digested ahead of time. In other words, I'll take an area eight by eight. And I'll create these organic layers. And again, you know, observing the environment where we are and the materials that we have, 
um, which is newspaper, cardboard, straw. And these are things that are flying through our waste stream, uh, and, and, and which are amazing to capture and put into soil building. So what I do with that patch is I begin by really throwing down whatever I have. If I have compost, great. We have really good municipal compost, which is basically leaves and long clippings uh, that we can get. And I'll get that, you know, delivered by the yard, and then I'll put down at least a couple inches of that. You could put down fresh manure, um, compost, anything, because you're not going to use it right away, ideally. So you would lay down these, this first organic material, and then I would cover that with newspaper um, or cardboard doing the same function. And what this layer does is it kills that grass or whatever it is that you started with. It kills that back and actually captures its nutrients. So the nutrient that's in that grass then is becoming part of your new soil building and all the roots that die off are creating organic matter. So you don't want to go out there and tear up your lawn and remove it. That's your first layer. Start right with the grass. Throw your organic matter on it. Throw your cardboard on it. And then what I like to do, well, that, that cardboard is, is, is going to trap the moisture, kill the grass, and it's going to draw up the worms. For some crazy reason, worms love newspaper and cardboard. If you've ever done vermicomposting, you know, worms in your house, uh, the bedding is shredded newspaper. They love it. Mm-hmm. So by throwing down this newspaper or cardboard on the ground, you're, you're, getting, you know, you're, you're calling out. and You're saying, hey, you know, here's the new spot. Here's the new, the new hot spot. This is the bar. Come on. <laughs> Dear and Worm they, Army. <laughs> yeah, and they do. They do. It's far out. A place that never had worms, all of a sudden they're going to congregate. Um, and they're going to come up through your soil, which is probably crappy and compacted. And they're going to tunnel through it, and they're going to excrete their casting. So they're going to be loosening the soil and fertilizing it for what? For chucking down some cardboard. Then what I like to do is I like to put in another layer here that I call the fungal layer. And this is basically wood chips. I put in about four inches of wood chips uh, on top of that cardboard. Now, the importance of this is that it's going to give you two to three years of soil building at one go. That first layer you've put down of compost and newspaper or cardboard that's only going to last one growing season. It's going to be digested very quickly by the soil organisms and the worms, and then all of a sudden they're going to be like, hey, we're hungry. Give us some more, or we're leaving, right? So by putting in those four inches of wood chips, and then I cover that generously with straw or some other type of material to hold the moisture in, right? You, the, the moisture is the key ingredient here for the fungi to move in, you know, the mycelium, mushrooms. They're going to move into the wood chips because that's their food. And so they're going to begin to slowly digest that and turn that into amazing soil. Are there any type of wood chips that for this fungal inoculation layer you'd recommend people avoid? Avoid, yes. Uh, I would stay away from black locust, um, which is a fantastic tree because it is antifungal and will last forever almost in the ground. Uh, Black walnut because it excretes sort of a natural um, allopathic chemical that other things inhibits a lot of things to grow. Um, I, I, I ideally wouldn't use a whole bunch of pine, though uh, over time it would still break down. It might just take a little longer. Uh, generally speaking, you know, most hardwoods, even your softwoods, uh, you know, these can be different trimmings. They can be chunks of bark. I mean, really, you're getting woody material in there, lignin, cellulose. You're getting something in there that's going to take a little bit longer, that's going to draw the fungi in and is going to sort of extend the soil building um, so that when that first bottom layer has been digested, 
boom, right there is the second layer kicking in, starting to keep that cycle going, you know, keeping those soil biota fed, and they're excreting all the goods and juices for the trees and the bushes that you're going to plant. Let me ask about cedar, because that's a huge one out here in the Pacific Northwest. Is cedar okay for this? You know, I've not experimented with cedar. Uh, I would tend to say no, um, at least if you want to do anything in the short run. Cedar, is, is, in a lot of ways, is like black locust in that it, uh, it lasts forever on the ground. Um, Very so high-oil content of, wood, yeah. Yeah, I would say it's not ideal. Um, you know, it, maybe if a little got mixed in, you know, the balance might be okay. Eventually, everything is going to break down and rot. You know, everything is going to turn into soil eventually. <laughs> it depends how patient you are, sure. you know, how much land you have. You know, if you just want to put a bunch of cedar in the corner and just forget about it for a decade, uh, you know, coming back to it might be fine. Um, but, you know, in the short run, yeah, I would I would stick with the soft and the hardwoods, and that's kind of that's my sort of that is that is kind of my long term approach. Now, that's not always going to jive uh, with people HOA front yard look. So you can hybridize that. So sometimes in the front yard here in suburbia, what I'll do is I'll come along and I'll put down newspaper rounds top of the grass, right, and then I will dump on a bunch of my compost, my leaf grow. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I'll put some kind of, you know, mulch. So whatever aesthetically is pleasing. I mean, I do like straw. I think straw done right can look good even, you know, in a front yard. Um, and so I'll cover that. And, and that'll be a simpler design that begins the process of, of creating a planting area where there was grass without a lot of input and begins to trap moisture. Now, it's not going to necessarily last as long because you're going to have to feed it again. You know, in about a year's time, you'll have to come out there and put more compost. You know, if you've got some grass popping up, you know, you'll just throw some newspaper and compost on it again. So there's no set recipe. There's no set way to do this. It's really just kind of um, the idea that you're layering organic matter and trapping moisture and allowing it to pretty much decompose in place. I mean, you're basically creating compost, but right where you need it, you're skipping a step, in fact. Uh, of, of creating compost and then moving it and planting in it. You're doing it right there, and you're bringing in the worms and the soil critters that do the best job of making compost. You know, they put us to shame. Uh, and we're not having to do so much work. I, I do a very similar sheet mulch when I'm setting up a new garden bed. I typically uh, smother first with cardboard or I usually use cardboard because it's easier to come by. We don't um, we don't get the newspaper delivered or anything. So, But I always have cardboard that I can get. And then I, I generally do whatever half-finished compost I've very terribly made. And um, chicken bedding, which is chicken manure and straw. And then I usually finish with wood chips because I feel like uh, it sort of is like aesthetically the nicest thing that I can get for free. And it works really well. I mean, it's, it's very similar to what you do. And it's a it's a very effective and not, um, uh, not very drawn out process to make a really nice bed that way. You no, know, you haven't dug into the soil. You haven't really had to hurt your back. You know, you, you're just basically chucking layers on the ground. And yes, it, it can be for a future garden. It can be for anything. It can be your pumpkin patch. Uh, it can be for your future lilac bush. Uh, it, 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 there's, there's no limitations uh, to what you can plant in this. Uh, basically, you're just preparing an area. And it might be an area in your yard. You're like, hey, I, maybe one day, you know, I want to grow some strawberries. 
So, hey, why don't I just go ahead and chuck these layers out here and then forget about it till I'm ready? You come back in a couple of years, and wow, you're going you're gonna to stick your hand in there, and it's going to be this rich, black, humusy, uh, teeming with life soil. And when you stick your plants into that, they are ecstatic. I mean, they, their, their roots shoot out. They have all the available food they need, and they thrive as compared to going out there and starting from scratch in your grass and digging a hole out and planting a tree in. That tree is like, this sucks, man. There's, there's, there's <laughs> not much here for me, you know. And so we've started with just a simple idea of a patch uh, that we're going to plant our fruit tree in. So let's say that that fruit tree is going to be that American persimmon we're going to start with, or that Asian persimmon. And we've set the, the soil, so to say, so it's nice and rich. When we come back after a full growing season, or even a couple growing seasons, when we come back and that soil is black and moist and rich, when we put our tree into that, um, it's going to be very happy, but it still needs uh, a supportive um, sort of little ecosystem with it. Otherwise, we're going to be the one out there having to, you know, bring more fertilizer to it, you know, making sure that the insects aren't damaging it, that, that it keeps up with mulch. Whereas, how about if we think about planting a little ecology that does all those services for us? And so to simplify that, you know, let's, let's get, you know, four groups here. Let's get something that's going to fix nitrogen for us. You know, something usually from the legume family, um, something like wild, wild blue indigo or lupins are very ornamental, too. I mean, these are very beautiful choices that you can put in. And let's plant that next to our tree so that its roots are helping feed the roots of our fruit producer so that we're not going out and buying compost or buying chicken manure and we're hauling it in. We're planting it so it's there. Um, permanently. Then let's plant some mulch. Let's plant something that's going to continually mulch this tree so that, again, we're not having to run out and get things. And my favorite for that is comfrey. Comfrey is this gorgeous ornamental uh, that has a very deep taproot. So it's going deep in the soil and pulling up minerals and nutrients into its beautiful, deep-lobed green leaves, uh, which produce amazingly to the point where I go out and I chop and drop that those leaves three to four times during a growing season. So it's pulling all those minerals into its leaves and then I'm chopping and dropping them on the surface mm-hmm. right where all those minerals will now feed into the root system of my main uh, food producer there, the fruit tree. And so I've got that planted and cycling and going. And then, okay, let's put in some beneficial insect habitat. Let's bring in the insect balance for this tree so it doesn't get devastated by, you know, one type of insect. And for something like that, I love to plant yarrow. Yarrow, again, is a very beautiful plant. It has this really um, neat architecture. You know, it's got all these little fine um, leaves and hairs. And it's a great habitat for spiders and other beneficials that will help balance and eat the predator and, you know, the, the insects that are, that are predating on your tree. Um, and then also, you know, let's bring in some pollinators. Let's bring in other flowers like echinacea, little gas stations along the way that bring in the passing insects. Ooh, I'm going to land there. And then while they're there, oh, I'm going to hop over here and I'm going to pollinate the fruit tree. Um, and so you're just creating this little ecology by planting perennials, companion plants. You know, in permaculture, we call them guilds. Uh, but basically, they're just companion plants, uh, usually perennial, in the sense that they're going to be there. They're going to overwinter. Uh, they'll maintain some structure for overwintering uh, insects and things so that, you know, you're not, you don't have this clear patch, uh, which is usually what happens when you plant annuals. Unfortunately, you, know, you, you lose the, a lot of the habitat. Uh, for, for overwintering insects when you clear a, a garden. 
you have a fruit tree and then you have all of the supporting things, those, those four categories you talked about, the um, fertilizing category and the mulch category and the insect attracting category. And wait, what was the fourth one? I just forgot. Pollination. The pollination. The pollinator. And sometimes those can be one and the same. Yarrow is a great pollinator. Um, and, and these are, this is just a simple example. Uh, really, you can plant just about, you know, any combination of perennials that attract you. You know, now that I have patches all over the place, I have all this planting space. When I go to a nursery or I go to a gardening event or something, I just fall in love with a perennial. I'm like, oh, that's the coolest looking plant. You know, I've never seen it, but I love it. But they, and I put it, you know, I plant it around my trees. That's and very dangerous. Way, the plant adoption thing. I think, I think most gardeners understand that. <laughs> like, I don't know where right? this is going to go yet, hmm. but I have, I must own it. I must buy this plant. I know we do. It's it's great. It's a love it's a love story, mm-hmm. and, and 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 so I encourage you know just you know don't worry too much about specifics. You know don't get overwhelmed that oh am I doing the right guild? Am I doing the right companions here? No matter what you plant out there is going to begin to create some kind of beneficial habitat. Now you don't want to overcrowd your tree. You don't want to choke it in the middle. You know spread these around. You know I mean the nitrogen fixer yes bam stick it in the same hole when you plant your tree if you want. You know, the closer the better on a nitrogen fixer, because ideally you'll also be coming along and chopping and dropping that nitrogen fixer too. You'll be using it as a mulch plant as well. So what happens is there's little nodules on the roots uh, of these nitrogen fixer plants that that harbor a a beneficial bacteria that, that that fix nitrogen. So when you come along and you you know you chop a little bit of the top of that plant off its corresponding root underground dies and releases that nitrogen. So you can move through your food forest or you know through your, your backyard garden of fruit trees and you can nip and drop so you're mulching and fertilizing with, you know, one simple movement. Uh, and, and again, you know, compare that to, you know, running out to the store and, you know, buying something, bringing it back, spreading it around, and it's not even going to be as, as directly beneficial as just chopping and dropping. I think the biggest challenge to chopping and dropping is that you have to get in the mental space to ignore everything you've learned about how a garden should look and just be willing to like go through and take what would have been weeds in your uh, in your past, right? And and just cut them and let them lay. And and I do this all the time now, but I'm new enough to it that I, I recognize that there's this sort of mental switch that has to happen between how we're, tra- you know, we're trained, how a garden should look, which is, for most people, a series of, like, sadly placed evergreen shrubs connected by this giant sea of bread-dyed bark mulch, right? That's what most people think of as their household garden. And, and to go from that to go like, oh, well, I have this dock, which is this nasty, horrible weed that I really hate having all over my garden. And instead of spending, you know, money and time and, and, you know, earth ecology, spraying it with these toxic chemicals, I'm going to just come by with my little hand sickle and, and cut the leaves off and just drop them right there. And that that's actually good for my garden. There's this mental switch that has to happen. And it's, uh, it's not always easy, I think, for, for folks. No. And I, it, we've also sort of been taught and, and we think that 
we have to work hard um, for gardening to be successful, that it's part of it, that you really got to work hard to make your garden good and productive and, and produce. And so there's a mentality there that we're supposed to be working hard, you know, good Americans or whatever, mm. you know, and really we don't. Um, if we use our, our, our noodle and, and we observe, you know, some successful patterns around us and we imitate them, uh, it's amazing what just flourishes, you know, why, you know, yeah, we can swing back in the hammock, you know, and that's the idea of permaculture is, is observe these natural systems and their success and imitate them uh, in ways that provide for the human habitat, design them in a way that the, the elements are naturally feeding it and making it flourish. And really, you just you put your design into the ecological pathway and it just takes off. I love that. I love that. So let's imagine we have uh, someone on a typical urban or suburban lot and they've done their sheet mulching and they have this uh, beautiful patch of soil and they've planted their one tree and they've planted their one sort of fruit tree uh, and then they've planted their surrounding support species. And now they have uh, what you permaculture guys call a guild, right? Sure. Yeah. Is that, how is that different from a food forest? That is a food forest. That right there, if that's all you have is that that guild, that one little spot, whether it's a patch, whether it's the edge of your fence in your backyard, you know, whatever shape it is, what you know, that is a food forest. That's it, period. Okay. You, you know, you do not need acreage. You do not need, a, you know, a large space. You do not need multiple patches, though I do recommend. Food forest is an old practice in the tropics. And it's something that naturally happens because of the, the light intensity and, and, and the warmth year-round. Things just really flourish and pop out. You know, it's what we think of as a rainforest or a jungle, uh, very diverse. And down there, you can create you know food-producing uh, food forests that are stacked on top of each other. You know, the overstory nut tree, and then the fruit trees, and then you know the cacao, and the bananas, and the ginger. Uh, and the turmeric and all these things going all the way down to the ground because the light intensity is so strong. Now, when we come up to the north in the temperate zone, there's a lot less light intensity, and we need to take that concept and spread it out a bit. You know, so maybe we only go to the mid-story tree. You know, let's talk about, you know, our mid-sized fruit tree, let's say an, uh, an American persimmon tree, uh, which gets about 35, 40 feet. So let's take that and then, you know, let's space out you know, another 30 feet from that, you know, let's put another mid-size, you know, fruit tree. Um, let's say something like, um, you know, a jujube, a Chinese date tree. We put that out there. And so that they have maximum light. And then between them, where we have a little bit of edge, we still have a little bit of light, you know, let's squeeze in maybe a small tree. And then we put an Asian persimmon in there. Um, and then, you know, where those kind of all join together is another little edge and a little space. You know, let's throw in a fruit bush. Let's put in like a goomy or a sea buckthorn. And, and let's put these things together so that they maximize their light, uh, but also take advantage of all of that available space. If you start with this 35-foot-tall American persimmon tree, then in a northern climate that doesn't have the same tropical light intensity, uh, we want to space it out and spread it out and and let that food forest, uh, let the patches of sunlight get to the various things in the food forest. And when you're talking about starting with a 35-foot tree, and I'm picturing 
urban lot, entire yard might be 35 or 40 feet wide. Let, you know, let, how do we scale down? How do we do this in every city in the country? Yes. So you can pick up the concept of the food forest at any size and any level. Let's say we're just going to start with a gumi bush. Gumi is one of my all-time favorite uh, fruiting bushes. You describe gumi for people just who haven't heard of okay. it? Okay. Gumi, there's a couple selected varieties, and they're about eight feet tall. They have these beautiful leaves that are um, on the top sort of uh, green with uh, green with, uh, with speckled um, silver flecks in them, and then underneath it kind of has this hoary silver underbelly so that when the leaves shake in the wind, like the whole bush shimmers. And very tough, very easy to grow. Uh, it fixes its own nitrogen. It's a nitrogen fixer. And you can put it in almost any soil. So, you know, poor, dry uh, soil, neglected, it loves it, it's fine. Um, you stick it out there and it will just begin to flourish on its own. And then it produces this abundance of delicious little red berries that also have these sort of gold flecks on And they are deliciously uh, sprite, you know, sort of tart and sweet mm-hmm. and very tiny. The fruits, um, I would say they're about a half inch, uh, sort of oblong by a quarter inch wide. And you can just, just pull them off even by the handfuls, make delicious juice, very medicinal. This is one of the most medicinal berries on the planet as well. So it's got this ornamental value. It's tough. It'll take neglect. It'll take poor soils and it'll look good and make you healthy and strong. And it's, it's pretty so, uh, widely adapted, right? Very widely adapted. This is, you know, one of those gems that's coming out of, you know, the the, the, the east, you know, out of Russia and, and Japan. And, you know, it's it's pretty widespread over there. And uh, anyway, gorgeous um, and tasty. So you can start with that. Okay, so that's your main food producer. You know, I've got a small space. I just, and maybe a bush is what's going to look good next to your house or on the corner of your, your, your lot, whatever. Then around that, you can sort of diversify and plant some other stuff. Um, it's, it's fixing the nitrogen. It's a nitrogen fixer for you. So, hey, why don't we throw in another fruit? You know, why don't we you know, throw in some gooseberries and some currants, you know, along the edge of this? Um, and then, you know, also let's throw in some other beneficial pollinators. And, you know, balance your food producers with some other things that are going to give another ecological benefit to them. Um, but then as space is, is given, and what I'll do is that patch that I create, I'll slowly, as I have time, I'll come out there and I'll extend it. You know, each year I'll come out and I'll throw down some more layers around its border uh, and then wait another year and that gives me another couple feet. And then I'll come out and maybe I'll plant some rhubarb out there. Maybe I'll plant some strawberries. Uh, and maybe I'll also keep continuing to plant some things like comfrey and yarrow as I intermix it and basically just kind of keep pushing that, that, that sheet mulch edge out. And if space allows, you know, if I'm growing a small fruit tree, so let's make that American persimmon and Asian persimmon. And the Asian persimmons are easily kept at around 15 feet tall. Beautiful trees, very elegant, small trees with a glut of fruit. And again, very tough. I've seen persimmons grow uh, just completely neglected in the middle of a grass lawn and, and do completely well. So, Another easy, carefree, ornamental. And so it's, it's small. So maybe go 15, 20 feet, 
from the from the center of the other patch that has, let's say, the gumi in it, and we'll start a new patch, and we'll put that Asian persimmon in there, and we'll sheet mulch around that, and we'll put in these different um, beneficials for it, as well as maybe sneak in some other fruits. Maybe we've got a little space, we'll put in, you know, some other berries along the edge. And then over time, as you keep sheet mulching the ends of these, they begin to join, and you've, you've gotten rid of your lawn, which is you know, usually a good thing. You do a lot less work. And over time, you've joined them, and, and then that, where you have space between them, where there's light, you take advantage of that, and you plant in you know, other berry bushes or perennial vegetables, or if it's flowers you want, or herbs, you know, there's really no limit. You're, you're maximizing on that space, and at the same time, you're creating this diversity that's balancing everything else in what is becoming a guild. You know, whether you intended or thought about it, all the dynamics up front, or you just said, hey, I'm going to start a patch here, I'm going to start a patch there, and I'm just going to plant what I find in it. Over time, you've created you, you, the diversity of lives, and you get that multi-layered sort of food force going on uh, without sort of racking your brain up front to how it all works. You, they will come. You build it, they will come. You know, you start off with a sort of a very general approach of creating a couple patches and expanding them and experimenting and putting in the plants you fall in love with. You know, go to some great nurseries like Rain Tree Nursery and look at all the cool, funky berries and fruits. And they like, oh, yeah, I'm going to try that. It looks like it would fit there. And just start experimenting. And that diversity and balance will naturally happen. I actually went to Rain Tree Nursery Um early, early this spring, because I'm very inspired by your book. I put in my own little mini suburban food forest. That catalog is incredible. I just love it. Yeah. I, I was like, I was like, okay, I want one of everything, pretty much. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, call, I call it permaculture porn. It's total and, and permaculture it porn. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I came out with um, a lot of really cool ground covers that uh, edible ground covers like alpine strawberries and mm. uh, lingonberries, uh, these little foot high. Uh, sort of creeping blueberries and so so people should know that even if what they have is a teeny space there are ways to take a really boring ground cover and turn it into something that's useful and edible and the, the alpine strawberries particularly are like thriving they're going like crazy but not in that really terrifying way that runner strawberries do where you you know you turn away for two seconds and they've eaten your entire yard they're they're sort of gently increasing their size in a very um, a very polite manner. And they're delicious. The, the explosion of flavor in alpine strawberry is, is I would say, ten times that of a, a, you know, a runner strawberry that we're familiar with. Oh, I completely agree. They're so good. They're so floral and fragrant. You can really, they just have, they have such a perfume to them that's, mm. that's just much stronger. So, so they're great. Okay, so that's 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 good. So you start with one little one little guild plot, and then if your space allows it, you move over and do another one, and eventually you've completely destroyed your your lawn and you've turned it into this food forest system. Exactly, they begin to link together, you know, and, and I and you don't have to get overwhelmed thinking, oh, I have to understand what a food forest is, and I have to read these complex books and understand all these different guild possibilities, uh, you know, which is really cool to do. I mean, and you might skip ahead some steps if that's your way of doing it, but I think for a lot of people that almost inhibits them thinking, I can do this. And it is very basic, and, and success comes just from 
you know, using this pattern of soil building and experimenting and getting, you know, appropriate plants, you know. So I wouldn't be planting or recommending uh, some of the things that take more care, you know, at least in our part of the country, east of the Rockies. It's very challenging to grow apples and peaches, uh, nectarines and plums with lots of uh, diseases and humidity. And so I really would not encourage someone to start with those, but to learn more by going to places and getting a catalog from Rain Tree Nursery and see what are some of these uncommon fruits uh, that are very easy to grow, are very tasty, and very ornamental. You know, you're like, bam, 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 you know, on hitting all of these wonderful marks. And I always encourage people to design for neglect, because that's pretty much, you know, no matter what your intentions are, will probably happen. So you want to plant things that are going to thrive when you've ignored them, and you can come back and, you know, enjoy their fruits or whatever it is. What are some of your um, choices other than gumi, which we've talked about, for a kind of a my first food forest? What plants would you encourage people to really take a look at um, that are going to be easy care and, and well-designed for a neglect scenario? Of course, the gumi I mentioned, but the sea buckthorn, uh, also known as sea berry, is one of the absolute most medicinal. I think sometimes it's, it's been said to be the most medicinal fruit on the planet. And it grows gorgeously. Uh, I know up your way. I know the Bullet Brothers have some really nice specimens. And again, you can use nitrogen fixers too. So, you know, these plants that are fixing their nitrogen are really tough and, and they, they grow really quickly. Because obviously they've got to have fertilizer built in. Mm-hmm. And, and so the seed buckthorn, there's, there's a couple of different varieties, but generally speaking, it's somewhat columnar, um, easily managed at about eight, ten feet high. And it has these silvery leaves uh, that, again, shimmer in the, in, the, in the wind and put out these beautiful clusters of orange and red fruit um, that look like a little bit like little um, hawthorn berries um, and are just gorgeous in their look. And it's not something you really want to pick off the tree and eat. You know, they're, they're definitely on the, on the tart, um, you know, puckery upside. But juice them, you know, add them in with a little bit of uh, honey or another type of fruit juice, and it is spectacular. You know, the flavor of it comes out. It's almost citrusy, uh, but the medicinal value in it is off the charts. Once you look into sea berry, uh, you really get excited. Uh, that Here's a very medicinal fruit uh, that we can value add into something. And the Europeans have, have uh, really enjoyed it and grow it a lot and use it a lot in their products. And now we're starting to see it come in on the high-end cosmetics and organic products. You look on some of these things, you'll see they're called sea berry or sea buckthorn as one of the main ingredients for skin, for skin care, I mean, for immune system support. I mean, it's, it is, it's one of the superfoods, and it's beautiful. It's ornamental. It's tough. Um, it'll take salt spray. If you, you know, in parts of our country where we're, we have heavy winters and salt gets thrown around a lot, um, you know, it'll take that. So will the gumi. You know, these are these are tough. You know, forget about them, and they will flourish and look beautiful. Now, the sea buckthorn, you're going to need a male um, for you know up to about six females, or graft a male branch onto your female bush if that's the only space you have uh, and use that as like, you know, your pollinator in one. And then, t- and then tag it so you don't go prune it off later. Put a little tag <laughs> on it so you remember that's your grafted male branch. That's smart. Gosh, I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, I better do that. 
Um, so that's, you know, so the berries in general, especially if you're starting out wanting to grow fruit, berries are very rewarding. Um, and generally speaking, they're easier to grow, they're quicker to produce, and, and they're damn expensive to buy in the store. I mean, you, you go and you get this little little half quarter thing for like five bucks of raspberries, which don't even taste like a good raspberry. Uh, whereas, you know, growing some patches of berries at home is, is, is fun and easy <clears throat> and very productive. So I, I, and generally, I would encourage, you know, looking to berries to start. And then one of, one of my favorite sources for learning about, um, you know, what we call uncommon fruits is Lee Reich's books. Uh, Lee Reich is a, is a gardener um, up here in um, New York State. I love him. I have his uh, his landscaping with fruit book. It's uh, he, he's just such a guru of unusual and and cool fruits and what you can do with them. And he brings them to life for you, so you get to know him. Like reading his book on common fruits or landscaping with fruit, uh, which which has a lot of the same information in it. Uh, you get to like know these plants and enjoy them. It's not overwhelming. Like oh gosh, I got to figure all this stuff out about this new fruit. He, he kind of gives them character and celebrates them and makes you feel like, yeah, hey, this is, I know, I, I, I can do this. I know this plant. Uh, I'm going to get one. And, you know, he talks about jujubes, pawpaws, you know, the persimmons, the Asian and the American. He talks about the gumi, uh, you know, and, and each chapter in the book of Uncommon Fruits is just about, uh, you know, one of his uncommon fruits. And I, I back up every selection he, he mentions in there. Uh, as, as definitely being wonderful fruits to explore and try, and are carefree. Um, yeah, medlars. I mean, there's there's just a cornucopia of wonderful, funky, fun fruits out there. You know, just people want to stop in the yard, like, whoa, what is that thing? Like, you know, you got a medlar growing in your front yard. I mean, it's like this ancient medieval fruit that had a cool looking leaf, almost like this this leathery leaf, and this fruit that's just this round, beautiful little like round knob. With its nose splayed out, I mean, and and, you, and that you let in go into the winter. You go into like December, January before you harvest it. Um, so this is like a real wintertime food, and you and you, and you blet it. It's a word named blet. You, know, you kind of let it sit until it gets really ripe, and you open it up, and it's like this spicy applesauce of a fruit. Uh, it's just just fantastic, fun uh, fruits that most of us aren't aware of. Well, that's a good way to discourage the feral hippies, is to plant fruits that people might not recognize as fruits, too. Oh, yeah, or, or the zombies. You've got to think of the zombies, too. So, so imagine a, a zombie future, uh, you know, where, where everyone's, you know, scavenging and eating all the food, and they've raided your food forest, you know, they've eaten everything they know is food. But if you have a Korean or Italian stone pine tree, which looks like any other white pine tree and cone, you know, growing, they actually have the pine nuts that we're most familiar with eating these days in them. So, so when the zombies come and, and all your food is gone, you still have your your, uh, your pine tree there. No one else is going to know it but you. <laughs> well, you know, I think that that's, that's another thing that people can do when they're looking at um, these unusual edibles or landscaping with edible crops. Figure out what you've got in your yard that doesn't have that edible function, like that, you know, 
whatever pine tree, normal pine tree, and swap it, swap it out. If a pine tree grows well in your yard, then the stone pine is going to grow well probably. Um, Up in our area, azaleas and rhododendrons are ubiquitous. And I tell people like, if you've got an azalea growing, you could probably grow a blueberry quite well in that same location because they have very similar requirements. So, So that's another thing people could do is if they're not willing to go like full on food forest yet, just just play a little swaparoo. Yep, swap them out. I mean, in my and we have a business here in Maryland, um, edible and ecological landscaping. And a lot of times, you know, I'll come in and, and folks will have all these evergreens, as you mentioned, and they're like, well, we don't have much space. <laughs> I'm like, well, let's rip these out and, and let's put something beautiful. You know, not just rip it out and, you know, and throw its corn. You know, let's rip it out and, you know, let's put it in these very ornamental with multi-season interests. You know, and we can imitate the shapes. You know, so another design when you think of suburbia um, and, and fitting in with HOAs or whatever, it, when, I, when I go to a new client's house and I'm doing a consult, you know, I'll, I'll go slow as I drive into the neighborhood and I look at the different forms of trees, shrubs, and I think of the patterns that are in that area. And then I think about, you know, the, the multifunctional uh, species that fit that pattern, you know, that look, that look similar but are productive. And come up with designs that fit in place, you know, so they look they look like, you know, the rest of the neighborhood in a good way. You know, you don't want things to totally stick out and be out of place. So but you you know, you can have your yard need it too. You know, you, you can design it so that it fits in, yet it's very productive. And to me, I don't think there's anything more aesthetically pleasing than a fruit tree completely laden, you know, in fruit. I just think that's as ornamental as it gets. Okay, one of the other things I want to ask you, because I know you build a lot of food for us, uh, for your clients, is um, I spent so much money at Raintree on the plants that I put into my food forest. How can people save money? How can people do this and implement this without going broke? There's many different ways. Uh, The USDA actually has a genetic pool um, that you can get cuttings from, uh, you can get seeds from. I think you might be able to get some plants from. Now, the benefit of going through a nursery and spending a little bit of money is that there's been a lot of research into the varieties you're picking out. You know, these have been proven for consistent bearing, uh, flavor, size, disease resistance. So sometimes it does not pay to, to you know, sort of uh, cut corners on on getting really good genetic diversity, you know, getting a good plant. And I see this a lot where people are offered free trees. You know, they have a small yard and they're offered these seedling pawpaws uh, or something, you know, from, from a foundation. And they're like, great, it's free. And I'm, you know, and, and I'm going to plant them and use up my space and I'm going to take care of them for many years and put lots of input into them. And then, blah, what am I getting? You don't know. A lot of times you're not getting something that's going to be very fruitful and flavorful as you'd hope. Um, so I always encourage people not to try and cut the corner on costs, you know, when it comes to actually buying the tree. The real costs come in your time, your care, and the use of your space, which is limited. Mm. So I, I always encourage people to invest in the best thing up front. And when it comes to mentioning pawpaws, I always encourage people to get grafted pawpaws. Uh, do not spend money or accept seedling pawpaws if you are expecting to get a consistent, tasty fruit because you do not know um, when you're getting a seedling pawpaw. And that goes for quite a few uh, of your trees. Now, there are exceptions. You know, we talk about the gumi bush, uh, the gumi fruit. Uh, it comes pretty true to seed. 
meaning that if you grow um, a bush from the seed of the fruit, it'll probably come really close to its parent. You're going to get something pretty much what you expect. Most stone fruits are like that. Um, but again, I would I would invest in, in, in spending a little bit of money. In, in a lot of these mail-order nurseries, like Lane Tree and Burnt Ridge Nursery and uh, One Green World, they do bare root, so they're shipping to you when they're dormant. Basically, they pull them out of the ground, shake the soil off, put them in a box and mail it to you, and you get it while it's still dormant and sleeping, and you put it in your ground. And then when the soil wakes up, the tree wakes up, and you're off and running. Um, so you're, you're really probably only averaging, you know, 20, 25 bucks per, you know, grafted or selected, you know, small tree or bush. And yes, it can add up very quickly. Um, but if you have a small space, uh, you know, that's, that's the place to spend a little bit of money and not cut a corner, um, you know, on going for something, you know, free or cheap. That makes a lot of sense. That makes me feel better about how much I spent too, because I, I I think time is one of the most valuable things that that gardeners have. And if I if I like lose an opportunity to get a crop for a year because I've got something that takes four years instead of three years to come into fruiting, um, you know that year is really valuable. That year is way more valuable than the ten bucks I could have saved getting a cheaper tree. Right, and your space is very limited, so you, you want to maximize the harvest and benefit from it. Now, folks with a little more room, homestead or permaculture space, you know, then there's an opportunity to actually do more propagation um, and, and and a little bit of research. Like, hey, well, let me try and grow some of these seeds out. Maybe we'll see if we get something that's a new variety for folks. Uh, but when it comes to the small acreage and, you know, suburban, you know, lot, uh, it's worth, you know, going with what you know is going to be successful. And then and then you can share that knowledge, too. Like, hey, you know, this gooseberry, this flies really well for me in our region. And, and you can share that knowledge across the board with other folks who have access to it. Like, okay, hey, I, I know my local nursery has that. And then so you can sort of create a common language uh, of sharing what does well. Uh, by working with with the things that are already in the trade, but generally, probably not worth it to try and grow stock from seed if you're dealing with a small space food forest. It's variable. Again, it depends what you're growing from seed. If if it is something that will come true, meaning it will you know be a close uh, imitation of its parents in its flavor and production. Uh, then yes, why not? And if you have a little area set up for propagation, um, then absolutely. And that's a wonderful way. And a lot of things you can propagate from cuttings. Um, you know, figs are very easy to take from cuttings. So there are some things that, you, you know, you don't need to keep buying. Um, but if you're not set up and you're, and, and you're not already experienced with some propagation, um, I would start definitely by getting something that's going to grow well so that you have some encouragement <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and not sort of fail from the beginning by, by getting a seed or, you know, a cutting to take. Um, and like, oh, I just can't do this. You know, I don't have a green thumb. You know, start with something that you know that works well. And then once you get some confidence and you learn some more, you know, then play with it. Then it's amazing. Is there anything that you've tried on your own homestead that has just not worked at all? Uh, we lost a lot of our Asian persimmons um, this last winter. We had a very hard winter, 
and we're on the cusp, um, you know, of, of that species. So, you know, the learning curve there, um, that, you know, just one, one change or one hard winter or something can, can really belly up, um, you know, some of the, some of the investment you put in the trees. Um, I've had lots of success. I, I, I think it's because, you know, I've just done the groundwork. You know, I've carved swales on my landscape for harvesting water. I've built up hugel cultures to harvest water and to create microclimates. You know, I've done these patches and let them sit. You know, I've, I've set the stage, you know, so that when I've come along and planted, it's just been instant success. Um, so in that, in that scenario, no, I've just, it's, it's just flourished. Well, that's fantastic. It kind of reminds me of that joke, though, you know, like 10 years to become an overnight success. You, you do your prep in the in the soil building and in the earthworks, and you make sure your water is going to the right spots and avoiding some spots, and uh, and then you just let the plants do what they want to do, which is grow and live. Yes, yes. And I'll throw another thing out there. I come across a lot. Our folks are like, well, you know, I'm only renting, or I'm, not, I'm only going to be here for a couple more years, or you know, they, they, they don't want to invest you know, time and money in the landscape that they're not sure they're going to stay in. And I think that's the wrong attitude in many ways, but because you learn, you know, whether you make it around to seeing that, that tree fruit and you eat it, you've learned part of the process just by doing it. Each season we learn different things just by doing it. And it takes a long time in temperate zone to gain some of this knowledge, and it just takes cycles, you know, year after year, which is fun. Uh, it's not, it's not it's a laborious thing, but it takes time. And so I encourage people to go out and just start. You know, if you're if you're leaving that place in two years, you will have learned two years worth of things you can take to your next spot. Um, and and how wonderful would it be to leave food for those people who come? You know, when you move into a new spot and if there's a you know a food tree in the backyard, I mean that's like awesome. You know, it might be the reason you even took the place. One of the great things that we inherited when we bought our property was four mature Italian prune plum trees. And for mm. for a very long time, the most reliable harvest and, and the most reliable processing that I did was, you know, Italian plums and, and dried dried prunes. And it was wonderful knowing that even if all of my other various garden experiments just totally bombed, I would have these delicious, sweet, prune plums without any work on my end they were just there they just showed up every year it was wonderful yeah that's a gift you know that's that's a gift we can give to 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 people like i just planted we're you know we're renting while we're building our house and i just planted a whole bunch of raspberries you know i created these gardens in the backyard very simply and you know plenty of raspberries and all these other things and i'm thinking you know I'm gonna leave a I'm gonna leave a little note to people who come next to me and you know, tell them what's out there. I got aronia bushes. Aronia is another one of my favorite berries uh, that I didn't mention earlier. Um that's that's medicinal, makes great alcohol, um, and very tough and very ornamental. Uh, and so I put those out. So I'm gonna leave a note and I'm gonna say, Hey, this is what's out there and you know, this is this is a little bit of a way to care for it and enjoy it. Okay, you just said aronia and alcohol, which which brings me to one of our mutual interests, which is this sort of backyard cocktailing thing. I One of the things I loved in your book is there was this sense of whimsy throughout the entire thing. There's these pictures of this adorable little boy who I assume is your son. Is that right? That's my nephew. That's your nephew. Okay. He's very cute. I bet he likes those raspberries too, huh? Those are mulberries, and yes, his, half of them were on his face and his mouth, and that's <laughs> in his belly. Yeah. 
kids love. But 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 another and then there's these illustrations that have a very whimsical you can do this kind of quality, which I really appreciated. And then throughout the book, there's like cocktail recipes, and I I, I you know I'm reading through this thinking this book has got to be written for me. <laughs> Permaculture and alcohol combined in or one botany, botany and booze. It's perfect. You know, so perfect combo. Well, you're okay. So you're working super hard. You're building this um, straw bale. Is it cob or straw bale home that you're building? It's a straw bale, circular round wood straw bale house. Wow. Okay. So how, at the end of a very long day of building this house, what do you put in your glass? Oh, oh! Well, I've got I've I've got a wonderful cornucopia of brews and meads and and um, just steeped. Um, you know, fruit berries and vodka, you know, one of my favorite things to do. Well, well, let me tell you first, you know, one of the reasons I put all these recipes, I, you know, most people put in a recipe for making a pie or a jam. And I'm like, you know, what do you want after a long day of working, you know, in the garden <laughs> or anywhere? You know, usually you want a cocktail. And, and the other side of that is I've also noticed, um, that folks in the springtime, you know, they get this rising sap in them to get out there and, you know, get their garden going and plant all these fantastic foods and fruits. And then as summer comes along like it's hot and they're thinking of going to the beach or swinging in the hammock, the harvest just kind of uh, languishes. It goes to waste. That's and I'm so like, sad. What would, get, what would get me out there? You know, what would get most people out there to harvest and use this is, yeah, having an alcohol, having it, having like a cocktail, a drink in the evening on a hot summer day is going to get you out in the garden and get you harvesting that food. So that was part of my, my thought and all of that as well. Um, but one of my favorite drinks um, is very simple, one of the simplest things to make. And it's basically, just get some really good vodka and steeping berries in it, uh, June berries. Oh my God, June berry vodka is one of those fantastic um, elixirs on this planet. Oh. And juneberries are, again, one of these beautiful, small, front yard, ornamental trees um, that puts out these delicious berries that look like blueberries and have a blueberry almond flavor to them. And they are captured exquisitely in the vodka. So basically, I'll, I'll get a, a little jam jar and I'll fill it full of berries and then I'll fill it all up with vodka. And I'll just stick it, you know, in, in, the, in the cabinet, you know, for about a month. Mm-hmm. And then I'll pull it out and I'll strain it. And it has this beautiful sort of uh, almost pink-purple pink hue to it. It looks gorgeous. And I'll throw that on ice or, you know, I'll just drink it straight. It, it, it doesn't even need to, like, be embellished. You don't even need to mix it with something further. I mean, and mind you, it depends how much vodka <laughs> at once you like. <laughs> I'm, I'm exposing myself here. Um, but it, it has all the complexities of a cocktail just from the fruit and the vodka. So really, you skipped all these steps of, uh, you know, putting together a cocktail or, you know, uh, fabricating, you know, the, the fruit into something else. And, then you know, it's just very simple and tasty. And you do that with, you know, all different types of fruits. It's that simple. I I totally get what you mean. And I, and I also know that when I've done infusions, fresh infusions like that, um, the fruit absorbs some of the alcohol and gives off a fair bit of juice into the final product. So your your vodka that you've started with, it, let's say it was like 80 proof. Well, it's not 80 proof by the time 
you're done with the infusion. It's diluted a little bit. So the idea of, um, you know, drinking an infused vodka neat can seem a little bit aggressive to some people, but it's a milder um, tipple than it was when you started. I, I get this a lot. I do a, a, a cucumber star anise gin infusion. That's one of my favorites. And it's the same. It's, it's almost juicy by the time the infusion is done because the cucumber water goes out into the gin and kind of mixes with it. So it's not, it's not like you're drinking straight gin by the time it's done. Good. That makes me feel like less of an alcohol. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for that. I think turning, you know, your harvest into booze is, is very realistic in the sense that especially when you have fruit trees, um, so much comes at once. You get such an abundance, such a glut of fruit uh, that you're scrambling, and there's only so much jam and so much pie one can eat. But by turning into alcohol, making meats like honey wines, uh, which we do from our honey and our and, and our fruit, it actually you know it harvests it and it preserves it you know for whatever for a decade. Mm-hmm. So you're not losing it; you're actually you know value adding it, preserving it. And, and allowing it, you know, to improve with time. So when I get all this fruit at one time, and I'm like, I don't want to waste it, and I want to use it, you know, I'm processing it into alcohol, um, which I think is, for many reasons, you know, one of the best things you can do with it. It's. I agree, and and I agree with you on the the aspect of how much you can consume too, which sounds really bad. It sounds like I'm advocating overconsumption of alcohol, which I'm not, but, but there's just a limit to how many jars of blackberry jam say you can eat in the course of a year. By the time that jam starts to go a little off of its peak and oxidize maybe a little bit. Um, but if you take those same blackberries, if you have like 30 pounds of blackberries and you make them into five gallons of blackberry wine, those those, I don't know how many bottles you get off of that, but it's several, I think it's like 15 bottles or whatever, are going to last for years and years and years. And they're great to um, bring to people's homes as like hostess gifts. And they're always kind of, it's always kind of unusual. Like people are always a little interested to get homemade wine or mead or uh, homebrew or cider. Uh, So I think it's, it's an interesting way to go. I'm thirsty. <laughs> well, Michael, I know you're on vacation. I appreciate you taking the time so much to talk with me today. Um, before I let you go, what's what's going on um, in your future? What are you working on now? And uh, can we expect a second book from Absolutely. you? Absolutely. I spoke to my wife about this. Uh, that, that I think what we're going to do is is create a book about every three years, based on you know just what we're doing, you know what's going on, which is what the last book has been. Uh, Edible Landscape and the Permaculture Twist is just the last three years of our design work and implementation and experimentation. Uh, it's just what we've done. Uh, and, and we're doing constantly so many amazing things as we create our homestead and build this you know, timber frame straw bale house. And the house is just the center of this permaculture landscaping system and sort of going through the process of that and what we come up with and really adding some really cool, unique, fun, artistic twist to it as well. Um, we'll capture that and, and, and put that into the next book. And I'm sure there'll be some new alcohol recipes, <laughs> you know, to put in there for sure. Well, I know I'm so glad that we got to know each other, and I'm so glad that you wrote your first book. I'm I'm really looking forward to see uh, what you come up with Thank next. Thank you, Erica, for what you're doing. I could talk to you all day. I love it. I love it. <laughs> 
That was Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Michael has generously offered to give away a few copies of his book to lucky listeners of the Grow Edible podcast, so check the show notes at my website, nwedible.com, for more information on how you can enter to win your own copy. On a personal note, I just want to say really quick how much I'm enjoying bringing this new podcast series to you guys. I, I know not all of my blog readers are, are necessarily enamored of this new format, and um, I know that I'm, and that's fine, and I know that I'm more known as a blogger than a podcaster, and that's totally cool, and this this doesn't have to be everyone's thing, and that's fine. But for those of you who do like and enjoy this particular quirky method of communication and connection and education and entertainment, as I do, I just want to let you know how grateful I am that you're out there and you're listening. Um, you know, I've long felt that I have the best readers in the entire world, and I'm, I, I'm, I feel that same way about my listeners. I just feel like you guys are the best, and you're, I really appreciate that you're out there and you're listening, and I just wanted to let you guys all know that. So thank you so much for, for taking the time and for being there and for your comments and for your thoughtful contributions, and, uh, and that's it. I, I, thanks. You guys are awesome. I'll talk to you next time. Email me at podcast at nwedible.com. Find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash nwedible. I'm nwedible on Twitter and Pinterest. If you like the show, please leave a comment in iTunes. It really helps. And finally, a huge thank you to the lovely and talented Kristen Ward, who provided the music for this podcast. Go find Kristen on iTunes and download her latest album. It's fantastic. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. you have